Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm the host, Jordan Maddox. Uh, this week we have on Vince Mancini, who's a writer, a film critic, a comedian, a podcast host. He does so many things. It was so good to talk to him. We talk about everything from journalism, its state, film criticism, how to host a good podcast, which if you're looking to start one, he has some good advice on at least what he listens to. And then we really dig in on what we think is kind of uh, ways for progressive media to be more accessible to the broader audience of middle America and not just the coast. This was a freewheeling conversation, and accordingly, there was a few more expletives than usual, just uh, just for those of you who listen with your kids, to be aware. All right, let's go meet Vince. Fresno's best! Fresno's best. Uh, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Um, so, well, the first place isn't really in Fresno, but I really like this uh, taco truck. It's on Academy and 180, Tacos Morales. I guess it's like between Clovis and Sanger, I'd say, maybe closer to Sanger. Uh, okay. That's like my favorite taco truck in the area. Um, as far as like restaurants in Fresno. Let's see. I like, I like uh, Huang Lan. The, the I think there's a couple of them. Like the Vietnamese, Vietnamese place. The one I go to the one on Shaw. Like I really one. haven't tested out the Vietnamese game. Is it? Is it? Uh, are we talking like banh mi's or what? What? What do you? What do you get there? So, so that place kind of has everything. Like they got banh mi's, they got noodles, they got pho. Like they kind of have have it all. I I I. Uh, I don't stick with any one thing there necessarily, but they seem to be, they seem to do it all pretty well. The only thing that they don't do, which kind of bums me out is the, uh, the spring, the fried, fried spring rolls. Like uh, they have egg, like they have egg rolls, but they don't fry it in the rice paper. And I kind of, when I want that Vietnamese like spring roll, uh, experience, what do they call them? Imperial rolls. That's it. There you go. When I want that Imperial roll experience, I want that fried rice paper wrapping. You know, I fuzz fuzz kind of bring back a, lim, a memory, kind of like Proust and and little cookies for me. It's <laughs> yeah. um, so like I uh, I went it's your to poison school Madeline. exactly. I went to school at San Francisco State, and I lived kind of right on the edge of Daly City. Which, if you, anyone knows what that place looks like, it's just like it's uh, like there's this Stephen King book. I think it's The Mist, or or it's a horror movie of some kind, and it's just this dark, depressing no, there's just no happiness there. Um, and, uh, I would go with, you know, I lived in this 10 story building with this 38 year old accountant when I was 19 and him and I would drive down to the strip mall in Daly city and get pho. And it was the only thing that gave my heart warmth. But <laughs> yeah. I will say this, I, um, I never food in Daly city forever, you know, for all the yeah. bad things. Yeah, yeah. 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 But I, you know, I never think pho in Fresno cause it's so hot all the time. And right. I guess like in the middle of winter, maybe it's, maybe I could be game, but it's not something that ever crosses my brain. And that's, and it's maybe just, you know, maybe just you associate certain kind of foods at certain places. Like I associate burritos with San Francisco or whatever. Uh, uh -huh. And I think there, there are lots of good options. It's just, you know, it's, it's relearning what they look like in different places. Maybe. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I haven't, uh, I haven't been there much since it's gotten warm. That's true. Um, other places, so this place shut down at the first part of COVID and I haven't been 
back, but there's an Indian place called Haveli. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Also on Shaw. And, uh, and that was like the first place when I moved back where I was like, Oh, this, like, this is like legit good food. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and th- yeah, they have really good. And I, I only had a lunch buffet there and it was really good. Everything was good. So that okay. place, and there's, and then, you know, there's a ton of places that I don't necessarily love, but they have one thing that I like, or they have one or two things that I enjoy. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you this as a way to transition to talking about being a transplant here. What, what do you miss from Highland Park that you can't get here or that uh, is not as food, good here? Food wise. I mean, I miss well there's a lot of <laughs> sadly like it was a really uh, hot spot for like good restaurants and bars like it was kind of yeah. coming up when i moved there i i was immediately like oh man this neighborhood's like cool and i and i knew at that point that i wasn't going to be there long because i've never anytime i have like a really cool neighborhood that i'm in i'm like i know this situation isn't going to last because that's how it's always been i always get i always end up in some neighborhood that I don't love for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so what I miss is like cool bars. They had uh, just more like what I miss in Fresno is like more specific concepts. I feel like bigger cities, they just do like a specific thing. Like in Highland Park, there's like, oh, there's one place that does like Basque food or whatever. And the, and here like they think they have to broaden everything and like dumb it down to the point where they're where it's kind of like the concept's kind of dull like we have a food truck called where's the food and it pisses me off every time i see it because i'm like what does that mean what is your concept where's the food like your concept is that you serve food come on (laughs) well maybe maybe it's marketing i don't know maybe but it's also just kind of the applebeesification of things you know yeah people people want you know, people want something where they can get tacos no matter what or whatever, you know, and it's, or we think they do. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced that that's what they want, but like, we definitely think that, Oh, I mean, there was a really good pizza place that was in that neighborhood. There was, uh, there was the Spanish place. There was, um, do you think it's, do you think it's just that people around here don't want to pay $22 for a fancy pizza or something? Or do you think it's do you think it's a, a money equation or do you think it's just, you know? I think it's part partly that, but I also think that because rents would be so much cheaper that they might not have to pay that much. Like if your rents if the restaurant's rent is half the price, I don't know that they'd have to charge that much to make the same profit margin. Um I do think it is like a general assumption of uh like oh yeah nobody here wants this which maybe is true i'm not convinced that it's true i kind of think that just everybody assumes because we don't have certain things that they would never work whereas i kind of wonder like oh did did anybody actually try that though because it doesn't seem like they have yeah i mean there's there's definitely people trying stuff i i'm i'm not sold on some of them i'm not going to name specific places Mm -hmm. but there's definitely people in fresno trying to do things but sometimes when they try to do it, it it just comes across as gimmicky, <laughs> as sure. opposed to yeah. authentically like quality. Yeah, um, you know, like some some bars and some you know restaurants or whatever. Um, but uh, that kind of leads me to where I wanted to go, which was you know. But I think I think we've all had that moment, those of us that have transplanted to Fresno, where we had a, a small freak out, 
and mm-hmm. then we and then it kind of calms down as the mundane life goes on. So what what has well, your you experience not, been did like? Did you not grow up here? Well, I grew up in the Central Valley, but okay. I moved away after after high school and said I would never come back. And I got used to the Bay Area. I got used to LA, and it just and then when I when I came back, it was yeah, it was it. It's like I forgot. It's like my allergies went away. Like I had clear sinuses, and then I came <laughs> yeah. back, and it was just like I started breathing more slowly. So. I, yeah. So what what's it been like for you? Yeah, similar to that. I mean, like I I grew up well, I grew up in Delray, which is between Sanger and Selma for those valley people who actually don't know where Delray is. Um and then I went to high school in Reedley. So Okay. Uh, so you know, when you know I would tell people land. Yeah, when I would tell people where I was from, I'd have to start like I I'd usually just say Fresno because I didn't want to go like four layers deep and have to explain because who cares? Um, but yeah, so yeah, so I did the same thing. I left when I was 18, I went to San Diego, uh, and then I moved to San Francisco and then I went to New York for three years and then I came back to San Francisco and then I moved to LA for a year before I came here. So I was away for like, what, I don't know, 20 years. Um, and I'm glad I came from LA to here because the transition uh, isn't quite as stark as San Francisco is mm-hmm. because like, there's a lot of bad things about San Francisco. And, you know, I was in my late thirties with a roommate, which is kind of the bad thing about San Francisco. Yeah. But when you come from LA, it is another sun baked hellhole. So, uh, it was basically like, okay, I'm coming from the same thing, but with an easier lifestyle. So it wasn't quite as jarring. It's kind of like, I, I I lose out on some like cool restaurants uh, here and there, but I, I gain the ability to actually see friends multiple times a week, which in LA is like not a thing. You see your friends like once a month. Yeah. So, you know, there, I, there's this problem that I've heard people talk about um, and maybe you could, cause I've, I've, I've been given the sales pitch, the move back sales pitch, you know, the uh-huh. college educated person that leaves the central Valley and you know, gets a a nice uh, a nice uh, eight hundred square foot condo in some big city and has made it. And um, and then someone says, well, there's a four thousand square foot mansion waiting for you back here if you move back. But for some reason, that sales pitch doesn't always work. So what what do you think? What what pushed you over the edge? Uh, well, I got married. I, f- I fell in love. Okay. Well, I'm not married yet, but I'm engaged. Okay, so that's but, uh, the sales pitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. that was that was pretty much the whole thing. Like there was never any like, Ooh, my life's going to be better. Like if I move back to Fresno, but uh, you know, I, like I, I do appreciate the ability to conceive of being able to afford a house and you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff, like having a backyard and stuff. It's pretty, it's pretty great. There's, there's things I miss, but uh, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of good things too. So let me reframe the question. If you're making a sales pitch to someone to move here uh, that's living <laughs> in a big city, how would you do it? Ooh, boy, that's a tough one. Yeah. It's also like I have a hard time imagining moving here if I didn't grow up here and didn't like know, know people because, you know, for me, it's easier. Like I have my family here. I have people here. If, uh, if I was just to, like, if I was, I guess my sales pitch for someone coming from the Bay Area would be like, hey, do you hate traffic and the idea of 
never affording a house. Um, we can do that here. It's pretty cool. Uh, we got, we got, you know, you know how you guys drive like four hours to go to Tahoe? Like we got mountains and they're, they're way closer. There's like national parks and stuff. Yeah, I think, I think the reason I'm broaching this question is that there's, there's different groups in Fresno that are trying to figure out how to entice people to move here. You know, like one of them is like Bitwise, right? Like they want, mm -hmm. you know, they want to turn this into a technology hub, which means that they're going to have to pull talent from other places just because we don't have the, you know, the educated, you know, population educated in that background to necessarily do that. But to, you know, convince someone to move here as opposed to taking a job at, you know, whatever tech company and whatever big metropolis in California is a, is a tough sell. And I, I've been trying to think about it, like what, you know, and it, and it is a lot of the affordability question. Um, I do feel like, and I don't know, cause you're a writer, like, yeah. like I do feel like a little bit, I mean, there, there's a little bit to be said about the Silicon Valley model, which is you're near people that are doing similar things. So that's like fuel, but then there's mm -hmm. also this like kind of withdrawal model where you're on your own in the middle of the suburbs you know, and you're, and you're writing by yourself, like Philip Larkin style, like I'm just holed up in my mm -hmm. house writing. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think both of them can work. And I've, I've enjoyed a little bit of like the comfortability of just like, oh, I can work on my creative projects without having financial strain. And I don't know if that oh, is. Oh, yeah. I don't That's know. huge. I, and also, I mean, I lived in San Francisco for 10 years. And when I moved there, you know, it, like it, even when I moved there, people would say, oh, it was way cooler five years ago. But in those 10 years, like I, re I saw it get really homogenized to the point where like I hated most people. I don't know if you feel the same way, but like I don't want to spend my entire life around other like 30 something white yuppies like that. It was so it was so bad. And especially if you're in tech, like it was all it felt like, in san francisco it felt like every city sent um sent their like nerd who became cool or who the, like a nerd who started making money and suddenly thought he was cool and um to me like i like nerds but like nerds were quiet when i was growing up and then bay area and the san francisco was just full of a lot of like loud nerds and i think that like nerds should be seen and not heard and like being around <laughs> a lot of loud nerds all the time is like, like nerds that are suddenly confident are the worst people in the world, I would say. Yes. And that was, that was what, that was what all of San Francisco became to the point that like I would visit people in other places and I would see, you know, just like a plumber or a guy who works in construction. And I'd be like, Oh wow, you guys have like real people here. We don't have any of those in San Francisco anymore. They're all gone. Yeah, because the robots are making your food. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I one thing I definitely do miss about the Bay Area was waiting two hours for brunch because mm -hmm. I could get my laundry done. I can get a cup of coffee. You know, I could walk my dog. I could read my Bible. You know, there's so many things I can accomplish yeah. in those two hours. I mean, uh, I think that is a big selling point. It's like if you want to do a thing here, you can just do, you can just go do it. You don't have to plan it three weeks in advance figure out where you're going to park. And also like the, the thing that I least liked about living in San Francisco is like anytime you're doing something during the day, you had to like sort of pack. You had to always be carrying around like a light jacket walking around because you know, and you, you'd walk around the city and you'd see someone just wearing like shorts and flip flops in the middle of a, of like a nice August day. And you're like, Oh, 
that guy doesn't know what he's doing because yeah. as soon as four o'clock hits, you're going to get that like Arctic wind coming off the bay and he's going to hate his life. And I like the freedom of not having to worry about that as much as I don't like getting like third degree burns on my arms when I accidentally put my arm on the center console of my car. But I, you know, I like the freedom to not have to plan everything out. You know, I think there's something to be said for the homogeny point too, because you know, the Central Valley is a lot more diverse than people understand. I think people look at it and they think it's a bunch of Trump dudes and trucks and then, you know, <laughs> uh, Latino people like working like in agriculture. And that's just, I mean, that's just not, not accurate. And I, I hear what you're saying. You know, it's like when you're in a place where it's that homogenous and there's one worldview and it's, it's to the, you know, it's just kind of like a, it inbreeds in itself and gets, you know, things get more kind of fundamentalist as groups don't have, yeah. you know, outside voices. Um, it's well, just I, annoying to look at too. Like you'd see groups of four guys and three of them are wearing Patagonia vests and it's like, come on, man, one vest per crew. Like you guys couldn't even figure out how not to look. It was kind of like san francisco and the pacific northwest have that thing where like fashion is trying to look like you don't care about fashion yet they all end up wearing the same clothes all the time somehow and it's like you clearly care so this whatever uh bullshit game you're playing is not is not working like you guys are worse than la hipsters you know, I think one of the best things that came out of Silicon Valley is the show Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's it's probably probably accurate. So let's t let's talk about um, being you know uh, writing for money. Um, you know, I um, I there's a lot of ways in America to accumulate debt. There there's some <laughs> tremendous ways. There's some ways yeah. that come with knowledge associated. And when I think about you know gratuitous debt you know, one of the things that always comes to my mind is an MFA program. I am, mm -hmm. I am always looking, you know, uh, there's something sexy about it. Like, uh, let's see, kind of like, um, you know, going to Oxford or something like something yeah. sexy, like you're sitting in a room and you're reading your poem or, you know, you're in Iowa that, at the workshop, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, you got some famous novelist sitting in the room, listen to your, listen to your kind of Sylvia Plath knockoff or whatever, whatever you're doing, or I, 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 I and so I get it, but you tell me, uh, was, what did an MFA program contribute to you and, and what, what's it like trying to make money writing? <laughs> um, I th like, if you take away the money aspect of it, I, like, I think I got a lot out of it. Like, I definitely think like I expanded my, worldview quite a bit like I came from uh like I was a I was always into like artistic things and creative minded and I always kind of knew that I wanted to do something in that vein but at the same time like I was a I was a San, I lived in San Diego and I was a rugby player and I mostly hung out with like a lot of meat-headed dudes and so like to go to an MFA program that's quite New a change York, it's yeah, it was definitely like a big change and I'm glad it happened. Like it was nice to be in a completely different environment. And I do think it also like it gave me the confidence, you know, like I was writing at the time, like sort of a, just sort of a, a movie blog, but like, a, you know, it was very like jokey and filled with dick jokes. And I, and I never, like, I never, 
think that writing dick jokes for a living makes you not smart, but it was nice to have like the pedigree to say like, oh, oh, you think I'm just some like dumb guy who writes dick jokes for a living, but I got this thing that says I'm actually not. So it was, you know, it was nice to have that sort of confidence uh, to be able to, you know, to basically have someone else validating what I already knew. It's a, it's a license. It's a, it's, yeah. it's, it's like, if you've been to an MFA program, you can, you know, it kind of carries a, a, you know, a, an air with it. Right. Sure. And I mean, it's just mostly, I think what I got out of it was reps because um, like writing and journalistically you're, you're trying to do short form content. It's all, it's all short form. And um, so I think I got the, being able, like having to write really long form things all the time. Like I have the confidence to do that. And I also lost the need to prove that because I think if you read a lot of internet writing, like there's a lot of like dick measuring kind of like, Oh man, I wrote 8,000 words on the best actress race from 1974. And it's kind of like, Hey, congratulations, I never ever want to read that. And I don't feel like because I've already done, like because I was already doing that long form writing on the side, I don't feel like I have to prove myself on the internet and write like these uh, excruciatingly long pieces that no one's gonna read, even though I still do, but uh, I don't feel like I need to do them to like prove myself. Right, and I think the reps thing is true. I think it's any kind of routine. You know, I mean, uh, something that I miss in terms of like a short form column that mm-hmm. had kind of like a repetitious was I just loved Christopher Hitchens columns and slate like those, those, I just, I just, I looked forward to them. They were short. Apparently he would do it with a glass of whiskey and he would do one <laughs> yeah. proofread and then he would just submit it to slate and say, it's done. Don't even, don't even yeah. try and change anything. Um, obviously that's extreme, but I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I think that's, I, I don't think people look at writing that way. Like it's, you know, some people are just a, like, they want their first draft to be fucking amazing. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, and you got, you got to do 5,000 of those before yeah. you, know, you get something that's worth publishing or whatever. It's your desk drawer will change whatever you've written from genius to crap. That's why you have to like put it there and then take it out the next morning and then reread it. And you're like, Oh man, this actually sucks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but I mean like the Christopher Hitchens things, it's like back in the day when people were all coming through uh, the system of daily newspapers, like you, you really had to earn your opportunity to write more than four or 500, 600, 700, 800 words. And so like when we've been, now that that doesn't really exist, like theoretically you could make your your internet article as long as you want it. So like I do appreciate having uh like being like like having that long form experience that sort of makes you realize that like length is not uh like a goal in and of itself and that like your your goal is to make it as short as possible and if there's more ideas in there like then you go longer. So it's like we've stripped away the the uh, the discipline that goes with a lot of the. There was a lot of bullshit that went through with the newspaper system too, but we have we did we have lost some of the discipline that went with that. I would say. Yeah, 
I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's kind of a, a, a terrifying freedom, you know, kind of like, a, <laughs> you know, to, to bring, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's a reference the audience will understand, but some like some guy like slate star codex where you're writing like, you know, 20,000 words on the state of mania and psychiatry and connecting that to culture. You know, there's, there's people that spiral out and there's an audience for that. But I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I think it's a very niche audience too. I mean, it's kind of like, if you're doing that stuff, like the, the goal would be to do what Kevin Kelly said about the thousand true followers and have that like real niche audience. But like for bigger papers, I would imagine that that's just not, it's not the way to do it. And I, um, I, I want to talk about film. So, so you went from playing rugby in San Diego to an MFA program and was film kind of just in the background throughout all that? Um, no, I mean, like I was a film major in, uh, in, in undergrad and then, so I sort of did like some work on, uh, commercial sets and I was like a grip and a cameraman and that kind of thing. Um, and there was times I liked it. I worked at the San Diego sports arena as like the cameraman, um, as an intern and and I was like, and I was shooting all the games for like the jumbotron stuff, but it turned out like the uh, production, the guy who ran the production company was like a huge, was super shady. So they like fired him. And then we all basically all got fired at the same time. And, and I was like, well, that sucked. That had nothing to do with me. I actually did a good job there. But um, I mean, for the most part, like when I would be on uh, like sets with people, like, like shooting stuff, the thing that, things that I thought I wanted to do. I didn't really like any of the people. And um, I also realized that like, like being a director of movies is like being a combination like salesman and um, like boss. Like if you're on the set, you have to like move a bunch of people around. Like you have to, you have to sell people on an idea. So you have to be a salesman and then you have to get on a set and be like a manager of people. And uh, those were not, either of my skills skill set so I was like I think I like this whole writing part and also like I realized that when I was doing that when I like the entry-level jobs in film is like you know you carry around sandbags and you're you're clipping uh clothespins to lights and shit like like it's all very easy like uh blue collar work so another job that I had I basically lost because like the director I was working for he had like some nephew that <laughs> moved back into his house. And so he hired that guy instead of me. And I was like, well, that sucked. But with writing, like there's a natural uh, feed. There, there's a natural way of weeding out those people. Cause you do have to like be able to spell and like, uh, you know, you have to be able to string it together a sentence, which sure. I didn't realize uh, would weed out so many people, but it actually does. And I was just like, okay, well this I can, I don't think some, some guy's cousin is just going to like come take my job at this job. This seems better. Like this seems, this seems like something I'm more well suited for. And so I, that's kind of what I gravitated to. So how, um, so when did you start writing kind of film criticism? When did that start? Um, well, I kind of like, if you're a film major, you kind of do that. Yeah, automatically, well, in a more like professional a, capacity. In a, um, so, I don't know. I was in San Diego, and like while I was working on those sets, I would, you know, try and I, I was kind of trying to pursue 
film criticism on the side. And I got, I think my first assignment was to cover the San Diego Film Festival for some random magazine that's now defunct, I'm sure. And, uh, and I got to review a couple movies for that. So that was like my first thing. And then I, I kind of transitioned into being like a copywriter for, <laughs> I mean, if you want the whole rundown, it's like no, a long, I don't, I, yeah, a long yeah, rundown I, of shitty jobs, but yeah, that's how it started. Yeah. Cause I think, I think I see at least, and you can maybe reflect back whether you think this is accurate or not. I, I mean, I see kind of like the Hollywood reporter that's just there to talk about, you know, how, you know, how the, the celebrities boob job transitioned in this new film. Uh-huh. And then I see kind of like the AO Scott world of like highfalutin criticism. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of my vision. And then I think the average person sees it kind of like Ebert and Roper giving a thumbs mm-hmm. up or a thumbs down to a movie. Yeah. And so it's either, it seems like it's either totally removed from the world or totally self-congratulatory. So yeah, I, yes. So I agree with that in that world. Like when I, like when I started out, like at, when I had, when I first started with the movie blog, I very much saw it the same way. Like you had, you had either like the real fanboy trash that was like, uh, you know, ain't it cool news, which was like three paragraphs of this, this guy talking about like what he had for breakfast that morning. And then, you know, 800 words on why he thought like the latest Star Wars toys were super cool. Or like you said, you had the real highfalutin, um, you know, uh, like New Yorker type criticism where it felt like it was very bloodless. Like I have this very, I have a problem with that kind of writing and with like the NPR, like I feel like the whole culture of NPR is like, we've dedicated our lives to doing whatever jocks do doing whatever the jocks don't do like we, we whatever the jocks do we're gonna do the exact opposite of that and it's like they're afraid to like laugh or like you know talk about sex or anything like that so i was like my goal was to, to, to i was like there's a big there's a big gap here that is not being filled and so my goal was always to like find like a happy me i feel like i was like i think there are regular people that like movies that aren't huge nerds or uh like bloodless intellectuals yeah so it's like is it like giving super bad like a like a serious review is that kind of what you're describing so like something that is accessible (laughs) to the average person but you know like actually taking it seriously as a piece of art i mean yeah i don't know like like serious i don't like I, i think it would be to treat it as a serious work of art yeah like when like jackass 3 came out i was like this is brilliant. Like, this is, this is great. Like, you, you know, and, you, and, and every review of that was either, uh, you know, this is trash that doesn't deserve to be called cinema or, you know, some really like highfalutin prose about it. But, but I, I really do think that that is one of the best things that culture produced in the entire like aughts. <laughs> like that was sort of one of the best things that came out of that. So I, I don't know. I, I just thought it was, being willing to uh, get in the trenches with that kind of stuff and not treat it like I was above it. Yeah. So kind of like, um, you know, I like taking pop culture and not just denigrating it for its reach, but just, you know, actually treating the subject and evaluating it isolated from that in some ways. Right. 
Right. And, and also, I mean, I denigrated plenty of things, but like, I would like to think that there was, there was like a series of sacred cows that I would, you know, would like to take down. And then there was other things that I felt weren't getting maybe the credit that they deserve because, you know, I think a lot of, I think a lot of film criticism is, is secretly middle brow and they desperately don't want to be. And so there's this, uh, I think that like movies are kind of like rock and roll, like it's silly and dumb and cheesy, but that's part of the reason that we like it. So to say that I don't like it because it's silly and dumb and cheesy is kind of, uh, silly to me. Like you like, you like things that are silly and dumb and uh, that's not a, that's not a bad thing. You know? Yeah, I mean, I definitely went through that phase where I pretended to like movies that won Cannes Film Festival prizes mm-hmm. and, and hated them, but I had to sit three and a half hours <laughs> with some, some you know, some, uh, you know, French exchange student girlfriend that wanted to, wanted to be high culture with me. And I, I, you know, and deep down, I just wanted to watch Seth Rogen smoke weed. Um, and, mm-hmm. but, it's, but to admit that is to kind of admit some kind of lowbrow interest you know, and I, you know, I appreciate what you're saying and what, and what you're doing. Um, and I think, I think there does need to be some universe where it's okay to like lowbrow stuff, quote unquote, or maybe just uh, ch- if, get rid of that label entirely. Yeah. So what are, what are some sacred, some the, like, yeah. well, I just wanted to I ask what, yeah. what are some sacred cows that you were trying to, you know, pop? Oh, I can think of, I, you know, there's always like the, every year there's like some movie that gets held up as this, uh, you know, like this great achievement in art that I think is completely bankrupt. Um, so like recently, like three billboards, uh, I thought was an absolutely horrendous movie. Like it's idiotic. And I liked that a lot of his other movies. Like I loved in Bruges. So like I was a fan of this guy. I was a fan of this guy going in, um, I'm a huge Sam Rockwell fan, like going way back. Uh, and so like this movie should have been great, but then it was very clearly like written by an Irish dude who has never spent any time in any, any of the places that this movie's supposed to be about. None of the characters rang true at all. And it was all just so insufferably try hard. Uh, and everybody was like, oh, this is so great. No, this is, this is a terrible movie. Um, that one comes to mind. Um, I remember like 12 Years a Slave. I don't think 12 Years a Slave is like absolute trash, but I think it's one of those movies where uh, the director like rubs your nose in a bad thing and you're supposed to say like, oh, that's a great movie because I hated watching it. And uh, it's about slavery and I'm sure slavery was bad. So uh, the my experience hating this movie mirrors slavery. So what a great job you did. And I don't think that's how like art works. Uh, and so that was another one. Um, Beasts of a Su- Beasts of the Southern Wild was another one that I like absolutely hated that everyone thought was this great movie. But again, it, it really felt, it really felt like someone who grew up in New York went to like a rural place and uh, thought everyone there was like this noble savage and made and made this movie about it and yeah yeah i i i think the true test uh to to know if someone's full of shit or not with this stuff is to to just have them sit down and watch all Terrence Malick films 
and be able to say which ones are shitty, right? Yeah. Because there's a temptation to just say they're all good. Yeah, because they know, all look pretty. They all look pretty and they're all, you know, kind of high concept. But, mm-hmm. you know, Tree of Life is great. And then that one that came after it was just dog shit. And, you know, it, but I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's peer pressure or reputational stuff or what, what it yeah. is, but I I, it, it exhausts, it exhausts me because, you know, I, I've, I've watched so many terrible art films because someone said something. Um, yeah, yeah. I've, avo- I've avoided some films because, you know, it's embarrassing to say I'm at the movie theater watching, you know, whatever donkey thing is <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there's like a couple things happening there. Like one, uh, like it's group think. Uh, obviously you don't want to be the guy that takes a stand and says, you don't want to be the guy that's way out on an Island because you really get, honestly, you really get nothing out of writing a bad review ever. Like it's like you, you, like people think you're doing it for attention or that it's going to like advance your career somehow. But like, you never get any opportunities uh, that come from being the guy who bashed whatever movie. Like it's not, Mm -hmm you're not going to get anything out of it. So there's that, like it's thankless. And then it's also that uh, I think people just want to congratulate things for attempting art, you know, because most of the movies are like so lowest common denominator that they want to, uh, they want to give people credit for, to trying to do an art and um, yeah, which I get, but also like there's, an obvious danger there where like you keep when you keep praising bad art people go out and see it and then they think that's what art is and it's like that's not it that's just you've given them you've given them a false idea of what high culture really is like i'm not anti high culture i just think that we could do a better job of identifying what it actually is well i think you know i think fresno is the place for you because you know, we're, we're, <laughs> yeah, for you sure. know, the, the art house yeah. theater, uh, I think went bankrupt a hundred years ago. So, <laughs> you know, I think the, I think the, let's see. I think <laughs> we the, how, when do we, no, I don't think it ever existed. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I we never I had a landmark. Think, yeah. yeah. I think, I, I mean, I think the tower theater should, should do something like that, at least to have that something like that as an option. Yeah. Um, so why don't you, cause since we're talking about film, why don't you talk about your, your podcast for a minute and kind of what's the idea behind it and what do you guys do <laughs> as, as a yeah. plug? Well, okay. So it's called the film drunk fraud cast. Uh, and I think we started out with the initial goal of having it be about movies, uh, all about movies. And then, at a certain point, I realized I couldn't get my co-host to watch a movie every week. So, uh, so then it kind of just became like us hanging out and uh, you know talking about culture generally. Um, since then, we've kind of gone back to trying to make it about uh, a movie every episode and movieish things. Uh, but like this was back in the like we started it in 2010, like when podcasts didn't have uh, clear concepts and like. Like now it's like this podcast is we're going to watch one minute of uh, one minute of an Adam Sandler movie uh, every week for 188. And it's like, okay, yeah, (laughs) we get it. We, it's a, it's a stunt concept. That's great. But yeah. So yeah. 
so we kind of right. we're trying to find a balance between uh you know people hanging out and having fun like it's me and another uh one of my comedian friends um and then we have guests that are mostly people we know through comedy and uh yeah we try to talk about movies but we don't like having you know too specific a time like if we get bored talking about the movie we're going to talk about something else you know i i would recommend it um because you know i discovered it recently um i would recommend it as a uh as a after work drive home you know when you're just mm -hmm. when you're just letting go of that day whatever that day was <laughs> it's yeah. just a it's a good release podcast that's that's what i would say and i i enjoy listening to kind of you know as a uh laughing and relaxation on my way home from a you know a garbage day at work or whatever yeah. um or you know on the weekends um like, my i host matt is a lot more open uh than i am which which helps because you know he talks about uh all his 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 weird perversions and uh and and he slips into his strange characters that he does from time to time <laughs> um have you guys psychoanalyzed uh, your relationship to the character from godfather 3 just so everyone's clear <laughs> Um, Vincent Mancini is, mm -hmm. I mean, so in the movie, you know, he, I don't think he goes by Vincent Mancini, but he's the, he's the bastard child of, I'm, I'm forgetting now. Cause I don't really watch Godfather three. I kind of stop after two typically, Yeah, uh, but he's played by Andy Garcia. Have you guys psychoanalyzed your relationship to that character yet? Or is that we've talked right? about that movie. I don't know that we've psychoanalyzed my relationship to it. It actually like people are like, oh, did you get named after that character? And I was like, I wish. <laughs> it was 1990. Came, <laughs> yeah, movie came out when I was like nine or ten or something like that. But uh, I actually went and saw it in the theater with my dad, and I was sick that day, and I puked in the popcorn. So that was that's that a was, sign of something. Yeah. <laughs> that was my Godfather three experience. I think Andy Garcia's character is named Vincent Mancini, but he gets adopted by the Corleones and so yep. he becomes Vincent Corleone. Exactly, exactly. He wants well, to fuck his cousin. That's the plot of the movie, which is weird. It is a strange, you know, I mean, if Coppola wants to make a movie, I guess he just got to make a movie, right? <laughs> sure. I mean, it doesn't matter sure. what happens. Um, well, he's so, made so many bad movies at this point that you kind of wonder, like, were the good ones just like accidents? flukes or what happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I guess, I guess uh, his, you know, his daughter has been making more good movies than him recently, which, you know, I guess is happy, happy you know, if you're a parent, you know, what you'd want maybe, but yeah. Um, so uh, what, what do you, what podcast do you listen to? And since you're kind of, you've been doing this for a long time, what, what for you makes a good podcast? Does it just depend on what the genre is or do you have a um, sense of how to do it? Well, sometimes, so I mean, I listen to an immense amount of podcasts. I would say, you know, it can either be like hosts uh, whose opinions I care about hearing that are, that have riffs that I enjoy listening to on the one hand, or it has, you know, compelling subject matter. Like I tend to listen to a lot of non-fictional, uh, I just listened to one, I think it's called, what was it called? Once Upon a Time in the Valley, and it's about uh, Tracy Lords, the like porn star who they found out was underage. And uh, like, that's a good story. I want to hear that story. I haven't heard that covered. Um, so I like stuff like that. And then there's like the stuff that I listen to. Like those, are, there's a bunch of those, like any of the like, any of the like the non form or sorry, any of the long form nonfiction that aren't too 
schlocky. I like, I tend to like those, you know, your serial esque uh, yeah. podcasts. And then, yeah. you know, someone's I have usually my, murdered, you know. Yeah. 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 Someone's murdered or anything about a cult I'm into. Um, and then, and then, you know, I got like my sort of perennial kind of screw, more screw around, screw around ones. Like I listen to like Reply All. And uh, I'm a I'm a Chapo trap house head uh, like like those guys, um, you know that kind of stuff. But like I'm always looking for a new one that's about like the murder ones were kind of cool, but now I kind of like the ones that are about uh, other you know specific subjects from history where I'm like ah I want to know more. But there's one that just came out about the NBA ref who was fixing games, which. That's kind of, that's an interesting subject matter to me. That is interesting. And style wise, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, it seems like you just like anything that's, you know, kind of done well or, or where you, you know, get attached to the kind of the people, the characters in the show. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Anything that's either good storytelling or people that I want to listen to. But I do think like there's a, like a long list of things that annoy me in podcasts. Like I hate the radio lab style where they, where they chop everything to shit and they put random, like weird, like static noises. And they're all like the ones that are really into the soundscape. I'm, I, I really hate that. (laughs) I hate that style. Um, and it seems like uh, you just really hate NPR. So let's just spend a moment and (laughs) just, just tell me how much you really hate NPR. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a sustaining member uh, for my local station, but you know, my local station isn't producing that soundscape shit. That's, that's those yeah. dudes in New York and DC. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's like a self hate because like I partly like, I partly am, you know, a semi obnoxious intellectual, but there is something about like the self hating intellectual where their only emotion is like constant guilt that I just, I can't get into. And it's like the, do you ever read the New Yorker humor section? Sure. It's like the worst thing ever. Like like the Borowitz report and shit like that, where I'm like, you guys know this isn't funny. Like when you are so repressed that you actually don't know how to laugh and your idea of comedy is something that makes you smile in your head. uh, Yeah. Like we have a segment on the broadcast called Tales from NPR where we find like particularly excruciating uh, clips from different NPR shows, which I find <laughs> because I listen to them all. Like I'm not yeah. trying to bash it to the point where I don't listen to, but yeah, there's a lot to hate there. That's all. Yeah. Well, you know, I think uh, for me, it's, it's, it's kind of morning edition, you know, where I get my news or whatever. Um, but yeah, I can't listen, you know, I can't listen to rate. I just, the stuff like Radiolab, it just feels like, I don't know. I just feel like I'm in some liberal woman's basement in Connecticut. And I'm just, yeah. and I'm like, just let me, let me out. Let me out right <laughs> yeah. now. And um, it, I, I, it, it just feels so insulated. Like no one else is listening to you except for people that are saying yes. Yeah. It, it, it's like, if you're not, extremely embarrassed about your family wealth like you won't uh understand it and that's kind of like where it comes from like there was that one where they 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 have to make it it's like 
there's a lot of uh, failed theater kids that I think got into podcasting where I think there was that one, I think it was called like 99% invisible or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I tried to listen to it and it was a really good story. Like the subject matter is always good. Um, it was a story about this guy who was blind and had invented um, like making click sounds like a bat to, to. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. I, I actually heard that one. I remember that one. Yeah, yeah, he like had figured out echolocation, which is an amazing story. But then at one point in the podcast, the host is like, he's like, yeah, so, you know, you don't need eyes to see. And she's like, can you say that again? He's like, yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't need eyes to see. And she's like, that's incredible. Can you yell it? And then it was like, you don't need eyes to see. And then I was like, well, I'm, I'm checked out. I can't listen to this anymore. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like you're at a... Um... I don't know what the word is, like a some kind of diversity seminar at Yale. And yes. you know, and it's just like <laughs> yeah. and it's like, what what are we doing? Um and you know, I want to just preface this so everyone listening, because it sounds like we're just kind of raining shit on progressive ideology and you know, the people that create it. That's not the point here. I think when you're part of the camp, you get to shit on it you know a little more than Mm -hmm. than the people outside of the camp because this is definitely my my culture you know if you will yeah Uh, which is what you were talking about the self-hating intellectual i i think we you know the people that get angriest are the people that are related you know oh yeah my my thanksgivings are you know aggressive so you know i so (laughs) i i i just think that uh there needs to be a little bit more I, f- I feel like liberal circles just need to relax a little bit more. If they just relax, yes. you know, and things are not that serious and, you know, I, but then again, and guilt you know, is not like, it's not like feeling guilty about yourself is not like uh, effective political action. It's not mm-hmm. a useful emotion. Like you can drop a little of that. Yeah. And you can admit that you've had sex before. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, Jacob Blake was nearly murdered, you know, like all of this is very important stuff. And that's not anything I'm saying at all. Um, it's just more like the narcissist on NPR. So, um, yeah. you know, it's we like, could, I, we're trying to help you. We understand why rural America hates you and we're trying to make it not. So yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We're the translators. We're like the guys yeah. at the embassies that, yeah, that help. Um, yeah. So that kind of leads to my kind of where I want to wrap up, which is, you know, you're, you're a journalist. Is, is mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I, uh, journalism in the Central Valley is kind of the, Fre- you know, at least in Fresno is the Fresno B. Is journalism dead or as I were the question in the notes I sent you, or is it evolving like a Pokemon? Like, what are we seeing here? Is it going to change um, forms? Is it going to be a Venusaur? Or is it, or is it just, you know, is it, is it dying? Is it, is it, is it kind of in a state of decay and it's either going to turn into murder, rape, clickbaits, or... Uh-huh. Uh, very niche, like places on the coasts where a, a tiny wealthy subscriber base supports David Brooks talking about virtue bullshit. Yeah, every week. What? So what um, is what is the future? Get out I mean, I think there's, ball. I think there's reasons uh, to be depressed, but also optimistic. Like it's very clear um, that private equity has uh, hollowed out this entire industry and. Uh, and venture capital, like just in terms of my internet specific, I think around like 2010 to about 2013, 14, every site 
realized they could get millions of venture capital money. And so they took it all, they expanded, they built these big offices that they didn't need. Uh, you know, they, they've got huge sales departments and they put all the smaller sites out of business um, or they bought them up and shut them down. And then at a certain point, like the venture capital money ran out and they realized they couldn't sell these things and make the easy money that they thought they were hoping to. So they had to lay off everybody. And so for like the last, I don't know, year and a half, it's just been like waves and waves of layoffs and, uh, and, and, and there's seemingly nowhere for those people to get jobs again. And so that's the reason to, to feel depressed. But on the other side of it, uh, I, people are still reading a ton. So like there is a market for that. And slowly, I think we're transitioning to more subscription models. Like I think people are slowly becoming okay with the idea that just like TV, you know, if you want to watch uh, fucking toddlers and tiaras you can get it for free but if you actually want to watch like a good series like you might have to pay for hbo and i think the internet is slowly starting to go that way uh i feel optimistic about the deadspin guy's new site seems to be doing well uh getting subscribers it hasn't launched yet so like hopefully we get a few more of those i just think the ad model is very like I work at an ad supported website, but when you're dealing with advertisers, you're subject to the whims of businesses and, and like the fake metrics that you get. Like Facebook had, was just like basically inventing video numbers for years and like making it seem like everybody got a hundred thousand views on their videos. So then all these sites pivoted to video and fired a bunch of their writers and then belatedly realized that they weren't actually getting views on those uh, videos. But now I think we're, we're starting at relative zero again, and maybe, maybe we can come up with a better model for it going forward. I'd like to think that. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I see, you know, I see the different things going on, like the Patreon world where, you know, you have someone like, Sam Harris, who's making millions of dollars, you know, interviewing people and then also putting it behind a paywall, uh -huh. <laughs> um, you know, and then, yeah. And then there's kind of like those local newspaper websites that like have 400 ads that pop up when you try to see who was murdered on the corner of yeah. Belmont last night, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, yeah, I, I, for me, like, I enjoy, it's almost like picking like a, you know, it's, it's the, the patron word is right. It's almost like picking someone that you want whose work, you know, you want to support. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've gone back and forth on supporting like my local papers, you know, mm -hmm. cause it's, cause I mean, here's the challenge for me. Like I want to support, cause I think the one thing that we're missing when we all, when we all subscribe to the Washington post is that we're missing that local element of journalism and the Fresno Bee is doing cool things. Like someone I had on before, um, uh, Daniel Bergstrom has started this Fresno land thing. Um, and it's kind of like an investigative unit within the Fresno Bee that looks at, you know, so far it seems like, you know, socioeconomic issues and race issues in Fresno. Yeah, I mean, I def I support it because I think it is just something that you should you should do because it won't get better without it. Right. Um, 
I don't know. Maybe it is the subscriber base. I don't know. I, I tend to think that we've kind of, we've realized that no, like, like the people who are looking to make fast money realize that they aren't going to do that in the news business. And I think ultimately that's a good thing because you can make a steady profit. You're not going to make a quick profit. Like you can make, you can make money doing good reporting and, and local reporting. It's just not going to be, you're not going to sell some investor like on getting, you know, doubling his profit in two or three years. Cause it's not going to happen. It's not that kind of business. So I don't know. I'm sort of hopeful that that will lead to better things. Um, I think these past five years, like the story has been all these, like private equities come in and they buy like a newspaper chain and then they just gut it and sell it for parts and take all the money away from it. And uh, like I, I, people t seem to think, like people interpret that as some sort of market force. Like they think that, you know, because readers didn't read it or because the internet killed the classified, that that is why all these newspapers are failing and that's like a small part of the story but like the big chunk of it is that a lot of these like big companies just came in and gutted all these places and you know left them without staff and yeah of course it's gonna suck when they sell the whole thing for parts but uh i don't know i i am slightly hopeful that that will change yeah me as well well, on the on the lack of reading note, uh, there's some. Uh, I like to end it by with book recommendations. Um, is there anything that you've read uh, recently, uh, whether it's film or whether it's just uh, some nonfiction, some good good storytelling that you would recommend to the audience? Uh, what did I read? It was uh, oh, it was Blue Latitudes. It was I think I can't remember, I don't know how old the book was. It's like a few years old, maybe more than a few. Anyway, it was. Like I watched the Captain Cook series uh, with Sam Neill that was on some public uh, channel. And then someone recommended this book where this guy went and uh, tried to recreate, go to a lot of the places that Captain Cook went to. And that was really entertaining, sort of a Bill Bryson-esque uh, like travel book. So I really enjoyed that one. Um, I, oh, I, re I read a Caddyshack book. I actually interviewed the author. Uh, by this guy Chris Nashawadi, and it's uh, about the making of Caddyshack, which to me was a little before my time. I didn't 100% like the movie, but like the story behind Caddyshack is uh, actually really interesting. I'm sure that was an interesting set to work on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was shot in Florida in 1979, so I think you can do like the cocaine math there. Like everybody, I mean the. My least favorite part of that movie is like the weird animatronic gopher, which yeah. which came about because like they shot this movie where they kind of just let everybody improv and at the end they weren't sure how to tie it together. And John Peters, the producer, who was like a notorious, uh, you know, Hollywood kind of guy was like, he came up like he spent 500 grand on like an animatronic gopher that he put in after the fact to sort of make the whole thing go together. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I've heard stories about using large rodents on movie sets is never good. Like, um, like in Groundhog Day, apparently Bill Murray had to get multiple shots, right? Because the, yep. the, the, the groundhog bit him. Um, At least they had a live one, though. That's true. Yeah, they, they you know, and I, I, that's, you know, that's a good, a good, uh, what was that, like, 
Is that an 80s movie, Groundhog Day? No, I think it's like 93, something like, something okay, like so that. Okay, so it's early, early 90s. 90s. Yeah. Okay, well. Look, if you're not getting bit by a rodent on your movie, you're not suffering enough for your art. Yeah, I agree. And that's that's why Tom Cruise said that one thing about like making movies like being in the military, right? It's basically the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would yeah. yeah, he would definitely think that. I mean, he's in like he's he should run Space Force, I think, Tom Cruise. Yes, he should. I mean, he's already fought like aliens in like robot suits and done it like 4,000 times over and over again. Uh, he's so. actually going to space for his next movie. Like that, that is the stunt is that he's actually going to space. So do you, okay, I'm just going to change it. I'm just going to take <laughs> a really left turn. Have you been watching David Blaine and his like balloons? Oh no. What's he doing now? So he... So his daughter watched some cartoon where a character held balloons and floated away. And so he said, okay, I'm going to do that. And so he got his like air ballooning license and he's literally going to fill up large balloons with helium and float at like to 20,000 feet, just holding on with his arm. Mm-hmm. I like that gonna, idea. And he's going to do it live on YouTube it, on the 31st, which is, I don't, I mean, that's soon. It's a couple of days. I'll watch that. Yeah, that was no, like a Howard Stern bit. weren't they gonna make? weren't they gonna get one like Eric, one of the Eric's? I think Eric the midget maybe. I think he they were gonna make him fly with balloons, but then it didn't happen. <laughs> I don't know. I've been I've been I've been going on some David Blaine spirals recently. I you know <laughs> it's I you know what we do on YouTube when we're trapped inside is you know it's your own secret you know, world that you go in, you know, I mean, uh-huh. I watch a lot of, watch a lot of Babish making stupid food and a lot mm-hmm. David Blaine tricking celebrities with cards. I mean, whatever we do to relax, right? I do. I can't get enough of David Blaine just uh, making people lose their minds. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that's the, the, the whole turn that he brought to magic, right? Is it's much more about the audience reaction than the actual trick itself. Right. So, yeah, which is interesting because then Chris Angel Mind Freak came out and then like I don't for some reason I have no interest in Chris Angel, but I'm still interested in uh, David Blaine. So, well, anyway, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to put the link to your podcast in the in the show notes and all the weird shit that we brought up over this time. Um, (laughs) You know, I think the ultimate conclusion we came to is that, you know, uh, you know, watch more, watch more B comedies journalism is not dead and MFA programs are a great badge. If you're going to live in Manhattan, mm-hmm. anything else? It's, a great, a it's, a great, it's short of uh, picking up a gambling habit. It's a great way to go into debt. Oh, let's talk about rounders. Great. Let's go there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you. Fresno's best. All right. That's it for this week. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode. Dropping soon. We're keeping them coming. I'm very excited. We have some amazing guests lined up. And as always, if you can, support us on Patreon or just simply subscribe. Give us a rating and review. It goes a long way. Peace.